Lynn Paul, and good to see you all here today. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to read the passage uh, that we started last week, and then uh, we'll actually jump. Uh, I think it'll give some sense of a completion, um, maybe a fuller teaching as far as what Jesus taught about marriage and divorce. And then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians. But for now, let's go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. He arose from thence, and he cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again, and as he was wont, he taught them again. The Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Tempting him. And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote this precept. But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man man leave his mother and father and and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined asunder... I'm sorry, for what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter, and he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. May God add a special blessing in reading his word, and let's just pause for prayer uh, prior to our study. Father God, we come once again to you in humbleness and openness, asking you to fill our hearts and our minds with the Scripture, using the Holy Spirit exclusively to teach us this day, that you, Father, would have your way and your will with us, that we would be open and receptive, that our lives would be changed as we become closer to you relationally. Father, I pray for each one that's come out today, and they and their families. Father, you know their struggles, you know their challenges, you know their lives better than they do. You know their needs before they do. Father, I just ask that you'd wrap your arms around them, and those that don't know Christ, that they would come to him today even. Thank you for what you're going to accomplish today. Again, we lean on you on the word and ask that the Holy Spirit exclusively would be our teacher for these moments. If anything is said that is wrong, that Father would quickly evaporate from our minds. We'll thank you for what you'll accomplish because it's of what Jesus Christ accomplished on Calvary's tree that we're here because he lived, he died. He was buried, but more importantly, he rose again, proving that sin was paid for once and for all, that we have the gift of eternal life when we place our faith and trust in him receiving your grace. To that, how could we ever be more thankful? We'll ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Mark chapter 10, I think we'll, uh, we'll review uh, from last week, and then we'll just sort of hopefully make it even more complete. Uh, from looking at the Word of God. Um, the number that's up here, those of you who were here last week, uh, indicates the average, it's not just, I shouldn't say the average, but that over the last number of years, that's the number of divorces per year in the United States. You can't take that just times two people, that's a million and a half people that are struggling, shall we say, but all of those kids, all of those grandkids. All of those, you get it, the blending and the stuff and all of that going on. And 
on this day that we're talking about, and let's even back up further. We know that we're involved in a series that Jesus literally is teaching his disciples. It's like this one-on-one training. We've got 12 disciples, and yes, he did speak to a crowd. We found that in verse 1 of chapter 10 of Mark. And it's not that he doesn't speak to crowds going forward, but his ministry's changed. It's, a lot of crowds are following him. He heals a lot of people. He's teaching a lot of people. And really, he got to the bread of life sermon, like, I am the bread of life. And it was like, poof, they're gone because they wanted physical bread. And he said, no, no, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. It's spiritual life. It's the spiritual bread. I'm the spiritual manna. And it was like, oh, we don't want any of that. We just want physical stuff. Does that sound like America? Does it sound like the world? Does it sound people without Christ? Does it sound like society? Yes, it does, 100%. And from that moment, essentially, Jesus started to take his disciples, knowing that his time on earth was short, probably about six months, that he was from that point going forward until he'd be crucified. He needed some direct one-on-one training with these disciples that would lead the church and take it to where we are here today, literally. And that's what he did. Well, the way he got into this, again, I love how Jesus is. He doesn't just blow people off if he doesn't want to talk about it. And here comes these, now, I don't know if Laramie can throw that map back out on the wall for just momentarily, but we find geographically where they were at. He's starting to come down from Galilee. His Galilean ministry is essentially over. And he's on the east side of the Jordan River. And they are going to be going to Jerusalem. Yeah, he has it right up there. This little, and I don't know what I did with my pointer, but it's okay. Um, I'll point. This little, this area right here called Perea, he would be on the east side of the Jordan River. That's the route they took. Now, actually, as they were coming down, there have been many that would have been uh, making this journey, the Jews that would be coming out of Galilee to come to Jerusalem. But interesting, you're thinking, well, if you're in Galilee, wouldn't you come just straight this way? Not if you're a Jew. Why? The Samaritans were seen as a, I would just say, half-breeds. They were not at all desired or even liked. They would rather go around spending more miles to not go through their territory than to go through the territory. I mean, that's how much they were disliked. Well, guess where Jesus is? He's on this side doing ministry around Perea. And here come these Jewish leaders, these Pharisees, and they come with this question. Now, Jesus, I'm sure, was not talking about divorce um, in, the, in, in regards of the people he was speaking about. I'm, I'm fairly convinced of that. But here come the Pharisees, and they say, they, come a qu- they bring a question. And with an ulterior motive, they want him to trip. They want him to fall. They want to tempt him, as the scripture just said we read. We talked about this last week. We'll just be very brief today. Uh, two things is, first of all, they would have wanted to discredit him. So the question, once again, if you've got your Bibles open there, um, they asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Tempting him. Is it lawful for a man to put away, to, to divorce his wife? Is that, is, well, Jesus, what do you say about that? In fact, why don't you say that loudly? Why don't you say it really loudly so that everyone sees really where you stand? Now, this isn't the first time that they would have known his answer. That's what's really interesting to me. It's not that they don't know this. Because we went back to Matthew chapter 5 last week. Guess what? Jesus specifically said that very clearly, that if you divorce your wife you are committing adultery, or vice versa, unless for one exception. What was that exception? We talked about it last week. We'll talk about it again. Fornication or adultery, okay? If that's present in that relationship, then that is an exception. They know what his belief is, but what they want is they want people here to literally, is that really what he believes? Because the other thing, the overarching sense of belief in this entire society was the fact even basing from the religious leaders that divorce is not only okay, it's even acceptable and should be done if the woman particularly, you came home and she burned your food. Get rid of that one. They could do anything. Really, there was any reason, literally, to get rid of your wife. And again, husbands, 
particularly in this society, were more prone to take advantage of their wives than the wives taking advantage of their husbands in that respect. Okay? Now, today it's much more fluid across our world, but you get the picture. The believe this or not, the religious leaders actually were pushing this concept. So here they come, and they, want, they know where Jesus stands. That's why they ask the question. They know exactly what he would say. So they open it up. Now, Jesus doesn't say, uh, enough of that. I'll talk to you later. Let's continue teaching what we're teaching. No, no, he's, he took it on, didn't he? And, the, and I love how he did. In three words, he basically said, I shouldn't say three words, but in short, what did Moses command you? What did Moses say? In other words, what does the scripture say? What does the Bible say? Let's go back to the beginning. Isn't that great? See, it doesn't matter what society says. doesn't matter what I believe. doesn't matter what you believe. doesn't matter what anybody believes. doesn't matter what the neighbor believes. What does God's word say? That's exactly where Jesus took them. Now, they were using Deuteronomy chapter four, 24. And it sounds like I'm doing last week's sermon over again, so we got to move quicker. But at the same time, in this sense of review, he takes them on, taking them back to the thing and the reason that God hates divorce. We went to Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, actually verses 12 through 16, and very honestly, it says God hates divorce. He hates it. Because what does it do? Just like we know in our country, in our neighborhood, or in our town, in our families, that it divides, it causes chaos and a great deal of confusion. There are so many kids today that are actually growing up in a home, I'm careful with that word home, that don't even know what a married family looks like. They don't even know what it feels like. Now that's not God's way. So we talked about four ways. I'm going to see if you, those that were here last week, let's review quickly. There were four reasons, quickly, <laughs> you're laughing, aren't you, Ernie? Uh, and anyway, yeah, I don't do things quickly. I don't do things quickly. But at any rate, there was four reasons that Jesus Christ laid out for them as the reason that divorce is hated by God. And the first one was? And one man, one that's right. Male and female. God created one man and one female. No spare parts. There weren't a couple of Steves. There weren't a couple of Eves. There weren't Jill and Sally and Joe or whatever. None of that was there. It was two people on the earth at the time, male and female. Now, that's pretty direct. That's pretty straight. That's where Jesus said, let's go back and start where we started. Okay? What was the second one? Excuse me? Yeah, glued together, right? Cleave, and, that, and I, I like that. It's like super glue. That's what we're intended to be. A, a, a man is to leave his father and his mother. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we went back there. And he's to cleave or to be glued to his wife. Okay, and third one. Two shall be one. And it's indivisible. If you think of this now. Uh, 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 a man, one man and one woman, uh, Adam and Eve, came together. And in their togetherness, cleaving, gluing to one another, literally there was born of them an indivisible one, which is called a child. That is the, that is the fulfillment of one indivisible, and one is an indivisible number. So it's interesting that a child is born from that union. They're indivisible. Even though they've come from two, they're one. And then fourthly, it's an act of God. Whether you're Christian or unchristian, the very act of marriage bringing two people together, that is an act of God. That's why it says, don't divide what God has put together. Now, again, not just Christians, non-Christian, doesn't matter. That act of marriage God brought, and he put people together. So that's what Jesus said. So we've, we talked uh, quite a bit about that, and I'm just losing my train of thought for a moment. Um, oh, yeah, we talked about a lot of that stuff, too, didn't we? There's one other thing I want to say, though, about Perea, which I failed to mention um, not only were they trying to discredit him, there was another ulterior motive. We went back, and it's probably fresh in your minds from last week. Because I had never, you know, m most people don't think about this, but context and geographic location is super important to how we're reading the Bible. 
Well, it happens to be in that little, in that area of Perea was a man by the name of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the governor or the ruler, or maybe that's a better word, of that area. He would have been from his father, Herod the Great, to the jerk, massive jerk. Herod picked up some of those same characteristics. And consequently, um, something happened here that the Jews were aware of that really could have put an end to Jesus' life. They were trying to not only discredit Jesus with the people, they were trying to destroy him and to kill him. Well, if you dig into Herod Antipas, you'll find, in fact, that John the Baptist came and was preaching in this area. And he said to Herod Antipas, what you've done is wrong. You have married your, brother's, your brother Philip's wife. It's never even said that it was his wife, but you married your brother's wife. You've, and you divorced your wife to do that. Well, you know what happened to John the Baptist. He was placed in prison. That's right. Terry's... His head was removed. Herodias, that sweet young thing that was, the, that was the wife of Philip, convinced her daughter to ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Now, what do you think the Pharisees are asking this question right here in this place, in this geographical context? You better believe it. They think they can get Jesus' head on a platter as well. That's what behind this whole thing. But Jesus took it as an opportunity to literally teach his disciples. Now, I want us to go to, this will maybe help us as we launch now into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because there's, there's some other things that Paul adds to this in speaking to another group that is very distant from Jewish descent, the Corinthians. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I want you to see the, the, the disciples' response to Jesus' teaching in this moment. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 19 for a moment. Matthew chapter 19. And let's find how Jesus responded. I'm sorry, how the disciples responded to Jesus' teaching. Uh, Matthew chapter 19. And I think it would still do us well to let's just read this, this passage that would be the, the corollary to Mark chapter 10. But it's from Matthew's perspective. We'll start in verse 3. Matthew chapter 19 verse 3. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any cause, or every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the the twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh." What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. They said unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? Jesus saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, that word we could say, any sense of sexual immorality. It's not just adultery. Okay, the, the, the word fornication, sometimes we, we think of that as being uh, outside of marriage. It's separate. No, no, it's, it's a bigger word than that. And Jesus is saying this very clearly. It's any immoral sexual act. So it's bigger than just adultery. It includes it, but it's bigger than any of that. Okay, let's keep going. And shall marry another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her which putteth away doth commit adultery. His disciples said unto him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it's better not to marry. That was their conclusion. They said, wait a minute, if we're locked into this for life and you can't get out of this, it's better not to marry. Oh, yeah. So what's Jesus going to do with this? And he actually goes on, we'll tie this in a little bit later. But I think that would be a good place now. Well, how does Paul respond to the Corinthian uh, atmosphere? I mean, and I, maybe I was just thinking of, there was one other, just as I was reading it, I was thinking of something I'd left out. Oh, I know what it was. Um, in verse 7 where they said, uh, 
why did Moses command to give a writing of divorcement to put her away? Now, last week we went to Deuteronomy chapter 24. These, those of you that weren't here last week, write that down. And if you go through the first four verses of Deuteronomy chapter 24, you'll find that the commandment is not to divorce. But the command was clearly stated. It is not to remarry the person that you had divorced that had become remarried. I don't know if I said that clearly. But let's say we have John. John marries Jill. John doesn't like how Jill fixed his lunch, so he divorces Jill. Jill then gets married to Fred, and Fred divorces Jill because she burns his supper. Now, here's the, this was the command. John could not marry Jill after she had been married to Fred. And if you followed that, I just made that up right now. It's pretty scary, but at the same, that was the command. The command was not to divorce Jill. No, no, no. But because if they did that, then that was the command not to be able to remarry because she was seen as being defiled in that relationship of where it was. That was the command, okay? I just wanted to say that again. So now let's talk about the Corinthians. Before we even get into chapter 7, you can turn there to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to find that Paul is actually giving answers to questions we don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I'll say to Paul, I said, I've got answers for which there are no questions. It's almost like this because Paul is answering a question that you don't know what the question is. Now, they had written questions to Paul asking him about something in regards to marriage and divorce. He is answering the question without telling us what the question is. So we have to take the answer and kind of bring meaning to what, where did they come from. So with that in mind, the other thing we really do need to talk about is the city, the town of Corinth. Just to give you an idea, if someone came to you and said that that was Corinthianizing, that would mean that they were engaged in immoral sexual acts. You get an idea of what the town of Corinth, it was built on that. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be a Christian in the city of Corinth? It would be terrible, wouldn't it? It would be unbelievable. Now, again, keep this in mind. What we were talking about in Mark chapter 10 would have come from a very Jewish nature. This was a Jewish background. They're in Israel. Okay? And so all, even though the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it would still be based upon the law of God. How they interpreted it is very different from what Jesus did, but nonetheless... It was still a Jewish background. It was very much steeped in, that, in the tradition of the Jews. In Corinth, none of that is relevant. This is a Gentile city that is on fire with lust and passion illicitly. It's unbelievable. It would be almost, if you can imagine this, it's America on steroids. That's how bad it was. And that's almost unfathomable, right? Uh, homosexual was readily acceptable. There, there was just, I mean, there was divorce at every level. There was, in fact, there were, there, it, it's just, it's, it's mind-boggling, okay? I want you to grip that because now you're talking about, Paul is writing back in his first letter to the Corinth that these are questions they asked of people that had gotten saved in that culture trying to figure out what do we do now. There were several aspects of quote-unquote marriage within that culture in Rome, one of which was, I have to read the word, I wrote it down, um, there were slaves, uh, and, and just speaking to that for a moment, there was a lot of Christians that actually were slaves in the Roman Empire. And that, that's readily known, okay? Well, the owners of those slaves would treat those slaves really just like chattel. 
Uh, just as they would make matings with cattle and with sheep, they literally made matings with their slaves. And the term for that was called, um, I got it here, contiburnium, contiburnium, which meant uh, tent dwellers or tent companionship. And literally, these slave owners would treat those slaves, and in this case, these are potential Christians that have become Christians. They've heard the gospel, they've responded, and they've been treated like literally livestock. Now, what are you as that newborn Christian? Don't you would have a lot of questions, wouldn't you? Especially when you've been probably have just now heard about Jesus' teachings or the, you know, being confronted with truth. Is that true? It's absolutely. I mean, can you imagine what would have been going through those people's minds? Crazy stuff. Now, it's interesting. I, I thought if this was a thought came to me. I don't know if we can play it out fully, but it's amazing today. We have some of that same type of live-in relationships that are you ready? They're slaves to sex. These people were slaves, and they treated them just as chattel. Today, we're so far down the trail that literally we become slaves to sex, and marriage has no component whatsoever in our life. Isn't that true? See, we're slaves to something. And if you don't have Christ, we're slaves to sin. But, but think of, wow, you know, again, we don't even know the level of this could have possibly been. So that would be one aspect, uh, literally, that people would have been, you know, finding themselves in. But secondarily, there would have been uh, basically just the common people. And there was a term called, uh, I, I've got to write it out because it's easier, for the term is usus. Okay. And most, a good share of the people in the Roman Empire would have just lived together in common law. What is it in the United States? In this case, if you live together for one year, then they were considered to be married. Is it like seven years in the United States? I don't even know. Okay, whether, I mean, it's not even really thought about anymore, quite honestly. But this term, usus, U-S-U-S, would have been, again, uh, no ceremony, no nothing, just sort of try it out, see if it works. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're still together after a year, then you'd be declared sort of like common law marriage. Okay? That was another way. Uh, the third way um, that marriage would have been somewhat looked at would have been um, a marriage by sale. This is an old type tradition. In other words, let's say a father had some beautiful daughters. They were gorgeous. But he was a lousy businessman. He was losing money. So he could actually literally sell his daughter to a willing buyer and bail himself out. Doesn't that sound terrible? Sounds absolutely terrible. But it was, it was a tradition that had been carried on for generations. But literally, that would be purchasing a daughter by dowry. Now, I'm not saying that's all bad, but you can get in Corinth what that would have been like, right? I mean, it has nothing to do with the welfare of that daughter. The highest bidder wins. That, that, my friends, makes me sick as a father, right? Okay? So that would have been another way. Now, the fourth way, which is the one that literally we're even here today and are more familiar with, is it was a term that I may not be able to pronounce correctly, um, but it is conferiation, conferiation, and it would have been done by the noble families. This would have been the hierarchy, and they would get together and they would exchange rings. Ah, that sounds familiar. And you know how they? You know why? I, don't, I guess it's carried through. I did a little more investigation, but uh, on your left hand, the third finger, some Roman guy went ahead and was looking through cadavers and said that there's a nerve that runs from the third finger to the heart. So that's the obvious place we must have a ring. Did you know that? I did not know that. <laughs> that's probably why we do the ring thing on that finger thing, right? And it's carried through all of these years. But they would have cake. 
They would have covenant. They would have vows. They would have before a public ceremony. All of these things that literally was captured by the Roman Catholicism. And consequently, uh, it's very common to even our culture today, our society. That was the fourth way. Maybe more in the sense of, be careful, it was more noble. At least it was more in the sense of bringing some, some uh, I'm just going to say some sense of covenant to the whole thing, right? Okay. And it's actually has carried forward. Those are the four things that would have been revolved in relationships in this city of Corinth. And here's Paul trying to answer questions that would have come from these newborn Christians. You know, when, we, when I say a Corinthian, a, a Corinthian or, or the Corinth church, one of the things that I grew up just learning was the sense of carnality. It was very fleshly. The carnal Christians in Corinth. Now you know why. It, it, was, it was amazing. It was just, it was the flesh and society on, on fire. And now here's these newborn Christians. And now this brings us to the first question, literally, that they would have asked. Because of all of this, wrongness in the sense of the sexual area. Is it better that you abstain from all sexual relationships between men? I mean, there shouldn't, we should just put our hands off of all of it because it's so wrong, it's so vile. And you can get some of that, can't you? Today in America, it's, it's crazy what's taking place. And I'm not just talking about, you know, and, and interesting, look at this in verse 2. There's so many places that God, whoops, I'm in Matthew. I'm, you're probably in 1 Corinthians. That's where I told you to go. I'll be there momentarily. Uh, 1 Corinthians, and let's look at verse chapter 7 and even verse 2. I want, to, I want you to see this. Uh, it may, he makes no sense of misinterpretation. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. That's pretty clear what's going on, isn't it? What does that say about homosexuality? It's not part of it. It's not part of it at all. You know, and that's not my words. That's, that's the scripture, okay? So thinking of that now, that's the first question that apparently seems to be asked. Should we just stay completely away and literally just push all of that relationships between a man and a woman, just push them off? We're gonna be, are we going to be better off doing that? And that's the first question. Here's how Paul answers it. Uh, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, these are questions you ask me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Or in other words, it's good for, for a single person to stay single. It's good, it's okay to be single. It's okay to be celibate. But nevertheless, verse 2, to avoid fornication. In other words, he's going to go on to say here, being single is fine. And by the way, singleness is a gift. It is a gift from God. But singleness to stay single and to fall into fornication, there isn't much worse than that. Literally using the single lifestyle. And that's what Paul was getting at because they were just saying, you know what, we're just going to stay completely away from marriage. Remember what the disciples said when they heard the permanency of a marriage? They said, oh, it's better not to be married. Right? And Paul is taking this opportunity to answer that question, but it also fits very nicely in the fact of this. Singleness is fine, but if you are not able to exhibit or to have self-control, if you're not having that gift of celibacy, having that gift of being focused in on God and God alone, then get married. And for the Corinthians, it meant, you, I hope I've got you there where the Corinthians were. I mean, it was, if you became a Christian in Corinth, it was like, you, you would almost be depressed by all of this stuff going on around you today. Our young people today. Christian young people. It's got to be debilitating to watch what's going on in our society, is it not? To, to walk that fine line, to walk that line, to take God's approach, to be after God's pattern. And you know what? It's not out of sync. It's still the same thing. 
God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Those four things that, that Jesus taught to those disciples in Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19 are still valid today. God still created Adam and Eve, two people on one planet, to come together, to form an indivisible union, to glue, be glued together, and God made it an act of his own. It's the same today. I'm glad it he doesn't change. I'm glad it's just that way. We've lost sight of where we're going. So he goes on to say, um, then he goes beyond that a little bit in verses 3 and 4. There's duties within that relationship. Let the husband, verse 3, render unto his wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but of the wife. In other words, this to making a marriage. Now remember we talked about why marriages are so prone to be, uh, in, end up in divorce. Christians or non-Christians. Right? It's, it's amazing how the church has lost its way, isn't it? I mean, the, the percentage difference between non-Christians and Christians, it's, it's hardly worth talking about. Every marriage, 50%, nearly 50% is up, ends up in divorce, Christian or non-Christian. What's wrong? We talked about that a little bit. If you remember, back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, I believe it is, literally part of the curse, part of that, the penalty phase of having sinned, that there's going to be this friction this conflict within a marriage where the wife is going to try to be the master of the home. And it's right there. It's in chapter 3, verse 16. And the husband is going to just, he's going to resist and go back and there's going to be this fighting. Well, that's never happened, has it? (laughs) It's with us, isn't it? It's just there. And you know, amazing, that's what God said would happen. And it is. Now, that's why we have such a high divorce rate. One of the things is, as we talk about marriage today, is literally two selves joined in the same home. And we, as husband and wife, forget the fact that God put us together, becoming one flesh, two becoming one. And you know the way you do that is just what Paul is laying out. The husband's responsibility, the husband's body, literally, everything that he is belongs to his wife. Everything the wife is belongs to her husband. Now, you see what's happening? Self is being demoted. The togetherness, the focus of union is becoming first and foremost. In fact, let me couple that with, just popped in my head. Let's go to Ephesians for a moment. Ephesians, hold your place. We'll be right back in 1 Corinthians. But Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Oh, let's see. Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, most of the time, husbands love to go to verse 22. This is the husband's favorite verse in all of the New Testament. And it says in verse 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. I mean, it's a fantastic verse, isn't it? And, and right away you say, well, see, Paul spoke to the women first. They're the problem. No, stop a million times. Let's go back one verse, verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That's the key verse. And what was Paul just saying right now back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? You know, husband, everything you are is your wife's. Wives, everything you are is your husband's. That's a a, a demoting of self, allowing this union to come together and becoming literally indivisible. It's taking God's approach. Think of it. We'll be be talking. We're going to close our session out in Ephesians to just say, you know what? There's a couple of closing thoughts of all of this that are super important on both sides of it. Don't let me forget to to do that. We're going to come back when we finish today, hopefully. You will remind me, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. Don't go there right now. That would be jumping ahead, but that's what we want to come back to, okay? But you see uh, Paul already taking a position 
for these Corinthians of what's really, really important. Now, he does go on to verse 5. Verse 5, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, turn back to where we were at. It says, defraud you not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan tempt you not with your incontinency. Now, the point of the matter is here, um, there could be a, a, a time of, I don't know, some type of a tragedy, something that's very, very uh, uh, elevated sense of climax in your lives, okay? And so there's for a time that you would be separate physically, a husband and a wife. Now, he's saying this, as long as that's consent between both of you, both of the husband and wife, and then also to commit that time to that very thing, prayer and fasting, but don't be too long. Because what you've done then is you will give Satan an opportunity. And that's the last thing we need to do is give Satan an opportunity. He wants marriages to fail. He wishes that the 750000 per year would be $10 million per year because then he wins. He wants those families, he wants those kids to be totally incapacitated by a family that is united. I think of all of those kids that are living in families that are broken, and it's amazing what happens when the father is incarcerated, that's in jail, the level of those children and their demise. It's amazing. These are wins for Satan. And Paul is saying this, be very careful again with the consummation of marriage. And again, coming back, the husband, everything you are is your wives. Wives, everything you are, are is your husband's. And if there's a time of separation, it needs to be very short. It needs to be consented. And you need not to give Satan any opportunity. Because you know what happens sometimes in very climactic situations. The temptation for someone else is heightened. Paul is saying very carefully, do not let that be an opportunity for Satan to get a hold of you. Okay, very strong advice, isn't it? Very good, very good. Um, verse 6, same chapter, but I speak this by permission and not of commandment. He's not telling you to stay single. He's not telling you to, to be celibate. This is, it, it's really literally up to you. Now, he says in verse 7, for I would that all men were even as my, I myself. What does that mean? Well, Paul is not married at this point. We don't, know, we don't know why um, the perspective that I've read, in a, to be a member of the Sanhedrin, one had to be married. He was part of the Sanhedrin, at least from my perspective. Okay? So that means he was married. Now, did he lose his wife? We don't have any idea. But at this point right here, he's saying that he's not married. I would say probably widowed is what I would suggest. Now, he's saying, I would that you'd all be like me. Now, why would he say that? Because he, he, he thinks everybody should be single? No. If you take a Paul, how would you like to have been married to that man for all the stuff he went through? I mean, shipwrecked and beaten to a pulp and stoned and you name it and you go on and on and on. Oh, can you imagine how difficult that would have been for his wife? Again, I'm not saying not to be, do you, do you understand? What did that make of Paul? He was so focused on Jesus Christ. That was his life. And that literally was a gift from God. And he's saying, I wish you would all be like that. Not because I want you to be like me, but the sense of what my focus is. Do you, you, you see that picture? Kingdom-minded, if you will. But he, then he goes on. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows. Let's take a look at that, verse 8. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows. It is good for them that they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, in other words, self-control, they cannot hold the temptation of, of lust, shall we say, and then let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Now, let's talk about those two terms that are used. Widows, that's obvious, isn't it? A widow is what? What is a widow or a widower? Someone that has lost her husband. 
they, their, their, their mate has died. Okay, that's a widow. Now it says something here in combination to that. It says unmarried and widows. Well, if the widows are those that have lost their spouse, what is an unmarried person? That one we'll find later as being a virgin. Okay? But by the way, that, that would be a possibility. But he doesn't name it that way here. He says unmarried, which would be divorced. This is divorced and those that have lost their spouse. That's who he's addressing these things to. He said it would be better if you stayed that way. But if you can't, get married. Now, who's he responding to? These, again, this is, this is very, very important in our context of who he's writing to. He's writing to the Corinthians. He's writing to the Christians that have just literally been converted to Christ. So here you have this potential man or woman that has just become a believer and they're in a state of being unmarried. They probably have divorced their spouse. And they're saying, what do we do? What do I do? And he's saying, stay right where you're at. But if you can't, then get married. Because what's in the past as an unbeliever is in the past. We'll be talking about this as we close out today as well. So his, so the, to the widowers, those who lost a spouse or one that has a new converted Christian, get married if you have to. You don't, in other words, if it's best for you, again, I'm going to say this. Singleness is great unless it would lead to fornication. There isn't anything worse for God to say than to stay single and to sin in immorality. In, in immorality. So if you, if you don't have that gift, then get married. Now, there is another point. We should say it here. Just don't get married to anyone, right? Or... In fact, let, we're going to jump ahead here. There's two places. Maybe look at it right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's go all the way to the last verse in this chapter. Verse 39. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. It says, The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. And then it goes on to say, only in the Lord. Okay? So it's not just... It's not just the fact of, okay, if your husband's dead, just get married. Uh-uh. No, no. Fuller than that. To only someone that is a Christian. And it's deeper than that. It says only in the Lord. It's not every available Christian, but it's those that would be in God's will for you. Now let's go to another passage. Um, hold your place. We'll be right back. Let's go to, I got to think about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. This would have been something that he spoke again to the second letter, and this would certainly have been important within this Corinth mindset. We'll be talking as we go further now in those relationships as a Christian, non-Christian. Verse 14, be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And it goes on to say, so this is really, really important. I, I, I wish all young people and I'm saying, I guess everybody's younger than I am, right? I'm 60. So anyone younger than me and older, too, well, we'll invite everybody. But the fact of the matter is, is if they could just get a grip on those that are seeking to be married, and you're a Christian, you need to be focused on only Christians. That is literally, as you pray about it, as you seek God's guidance, that it's a Christian that is in God's will for you. I remember myself, um, before Lisa, Lisa and I were married, I remember uh, dating uh, a Christian gal. But our, our backgrounds, our interests were so amazingly different. And that's not to say, understand what I'm saying. But it was so clear to me, that's not 
God's choice for me. But she was a Christian, a loving, she was just a really lovely girl. But the point of the matter was, that was not God's choice for me. You see, it's a combination of the two. A Christian and someone that is in God's will for you. And that requires prayer and time, right? It does. That's very clear, and, and that needs to be stated in so many ways. It's just so important. Now, however, we come to something else that literally the Corinth people would be thinking about. Well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm married. I'm in a relationship. And, and I just got saved, but my spouse is not saved. What do I do? Get rid of them? I mean, literally, wouldn't that be right? We just read, now they didn't have that letter, but we do. Second Corinthians, we just read it, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. In other words, don't be, don't be unequally yoked. So I, better, I saw this Christian girl down there at the church. She is something. I'm going to get rid of this unbeliever, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to change. I'm going to get the good one, right? How's Paul going to answer that question? Because it, that's a valid question, isn't it? I mean, literally, it's a valid question. How do we do that? How, what state should we be looking for in that regard? So let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And let's start in in verse 10. Let me turn my notes here a second. Verse 10, the alternatives for those who are married. So they must have asked that question. And he says, unto the married, I command. Oh, watch this. This is going to revert back to Jesus' teaching because he says, yet not I, but the Lord. This is, this is literally teaching from the Lord now. Okay, now we got to stop for a moment. Got to take a little bit of a time out. Just a little parenthesis here. Wait a minute. Are you saying that what Paul said is not inspired? In other words, now we're going to just talk about what Jesus said, and anything else is just Paul's opinion, and it's not as high up? No, they're on the same level. All Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God's Word. Now, is Paul and Jesus on the same level in the words in the Bible? Yes, because the Bible says all Scripture is inspired. Now, he is saying... This is what Jesus said. These next few verses, this is exactly what he said. We'll find it back in Matthew chapter 19. You'll find it in Mark chapter 10. And you'll find it in Luke chapter 16, verse 18. That's Jesus and Matthew 5, 31, 32. You'll find all of that. This is what Jesus said. But you're going to find on three different occasions at least, Paul said, now this isn't from the Lord, but it's from me. Now that doesn't mean it's any less. That's what I really want to be careful of. One of the things about the red letter Bibles, maybe you have one, maybe you don't. I do because I like to see what Jesus said. But there is a caution in that. Jesus' words that are in red letter are no more inspired than the words that are in black. Follow that? Be careful. That's exactly what's going on here. Paul's words are not any less important, any less inspired than Jesus himself. Okay, I want to just make sure that we understand that. So now let's go forward. This is Jesus' teaching. Let's see what, if it follows exactly what we've learned. Verse 10, chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. And unto the married... These are married. I command, not I, but the Lord. This is from the Lord's command. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Stay married. But, and if she depart, if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. In other words, it's the same on both sides. So let's make sure we understand this. So far, we have within what we've described from last week and this week, there is one exception that's allowable for divorce from God's perspective. And that is? Adultery. Now, we talked about this last week in the sense of adultery in the Old Testament, the law demanded what? Yeah. Death. Okay? And in God's mercy, that was not carried out, I don't, very, very few times. But the point of the matter was this is what God demanded. This is what he said was really the judicial completion of that sin. 
death. So when there's adultery, there would be death, and then that partner would literally be free to marry, correct? That's why Jesus said, at the exception of fornication or adultery, that person is free to go. Now, by the law, that person would already be dead, so the the bond, the law would be broken, and the opening for remarriage would be there. Do Do you see that? That person is seen as literally dead before God, so that is open to that. Now, he's saying here, this is what God is saying, if you're married, stay married, with the exception of adultery. There's one exception so far. We're going to find another one here in a little bit. Now, what goes on to say, I'll find my glasses a second. Verse 11, and, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried and be reconciled to her husband. Let's say then that this person is a Christian. Now, this is, this is, this is probably brand new information for these Corinthians. It is. I mean, it, it is. They're asking questions they want no answers to. And they say, I'm married. And he says, okay, the Lord says this. Stay married. But if that wife departs, if she leaves, she has two options. Stay unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. Period. And that, again, that is apart from adultery as being a cause. If adultery is a cause, we've just talked about it, then that person would be free to remarry. Not necessarily have to. We talked about that last week. That book of Hosea, which Paul brought to us last week. I mean, there's a, you talk about a book about forgiveness and love. Here's this poor guy, Hosea, that's told to marry a woman called Gomer, right? <laughs> Stay away from the Gomers. <laughs> and has children from this woman, and then she goes off chasing the world. Comes a prostitute. He goes, now, what would have you been legally acceptable to do? He could have divorced her right then, correct? But there's something there that actually is a picture of how God treats his people Israel. No, Hosea didn't do that. He went back and literally bought her out of the slave market, returned her home, and put all of his love and wraps it around her again. That's what really God is saying, is the love that just because there is adultery doesn't mean you have to divorce that person. You see what I'm saying? Now, if there's an unrepentance, don't, don't, don't misread this now. If there's unrepentance, if there's no sense of changing in, other, in any way, shape, or form, then that may be the only solution. But divorce should never be the first solution. Okay? So remain as you are. Stay where you're at. Verse 12. Now he's going to change. Now watch. He says, I speak, not the Lord. This is something that Jesus did not talk about. But it's on the same level of the sense of credence. Verse 12. But the, to the rest. In other words, the rest of the people speak, I, not the Lord. Now watch. Here's another alternative. Here's something else that he wants to talk about because this has been a question that's come to him. If any brother, a Christian, hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. That's an important consideration because this, I just kind of mentioned that. Um, this, this guy's name is, uh, what's his name? There's no, I'm going to make sure nobody in here has named this. Uh, let's go with... Um, Let's go with, what are we going to go with? Uh, Ralph. There's a Ralph, okay? And Ralph got saved, and he's in the city of Corinth, and he's married to Irene. I'm going to have to remember all these names. And Irene is an unbeliever. Ralph knows that he got saved, and he has Irene. And they got married, and it was all good. And now (laughs) Ralph Ralph knows he's seen the light. He's seen what Jesus Christ has done for him. He's, He's engaged. And so what's Ralph doing? He's probably going down to church, right? going to go down and you know get some fellowship and and irene says i'm not going there man that's not that's not me by the way that's pretty common isn't it okay now it could be flipped you know you could have it the other way around because we're it's both ways it's both ways 
And you know what? As Ralph keeps going to church down there, there's this really nice gal. And uh, her name is Sally. And, you know, the more that he's at church and the more he sees the love of the Lord in Sally, he's saying, well, why wouldn't I get up rid of Irene then, right? Because she doesn't even know Jesus. Do you, do you see how easy this is to get into this? And Paul is saying, no, 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 a thousand times no. Oh, no. No, stay where you're at. Stay right where you're at. And he's going to tell us why in a moment. Or the vice versa, if it's the woman that gets saved, the wife gets saved, and her husband doesn't want anything to do with Christ, no, don't leave. Stay right there because there's a reason for that. Because literally the Christian within that home, now think of it, more than likely there's children there as well. There's Johnny and Jill and Sam, right? Now what happens if, in this case, let's say the wife's a believer and she leaves. What are the chances of those three kids knowing about Christ? Ooh, right? In fact, the word that, let's, let's find it in the scripture. Let's go back to, you're, you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's, let's go back down and uh, let's read verse 13 as well. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, playing the other side, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave. Watch. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were their children unclean, and now they are holy. Now, let's take that apart for a moment. The very essence of having this spouse involved in the marriage, one being saved, one knowing Christ, and one not, to be inside of that home actually is a sanctifying process. Now, I did not say redeeming. This is not about salvation. In other words, if that wife stays there, that, that means that her husband, being unsaved, will get saved. No, he could, but that's not what we're talking about. We're literally talking about God's grace overflowing in that home because of the Christian living there in that home. I can't begin to tell you how important it is. In this case, I'm going to talk about the woman that's a believer and the husband's not. They have three children, say. What do you think the influence of that mother is on those three kids and she's a believer? It may not be perfect. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, God wants both to be believers, obviously. But do you imagine how strong that is, the importance of that woman staying there? If he wants to be there. Now, it goes on to say, if he desires to leave, or the wife that's the unbeliever desires to leave, let them go. Now, there would be those that say, no, I'm going to hang on to him to the very end because I'm going to save him. Right? I'm going to get him saved. <laughs> you ever heard that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You've heard it, haven't you? Okay. And it, it sounds good, but look, look at Paul. He actually gives us a perspective on that. Um, Let's go, uh, oh, let's read verse 15. I kind of didn't read that, but here we go. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. In other words, let's say this again. If that unbelieving wife or the unbelieving husband, if they choose to leave or to divorce the believer, let them go. And that person that would say, wait a minute. I've got to, somehow I've got to, I'm, I've got to save that person. I've got to be here. Watch what he says. Verse uh, 16. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? In other words, don't hang on to them for that reason. If they want to leave, it probably will even make it worse for the family than to try to just hang on for every life. And you could name probably families like that. That it just becomes this war. What did you say? Did you see the reason for that to go? For peace. 
for peace. Now, if that unbeliever leaves, divorces the other spouse, then that believing spouse at that point is now free to remarry. That bond is broken because of the unbeliever being is taken off, left. Again, it isn't what God wants. That's why he said, if possible, stay right where you're at for the sake of the children, for the sake of even your husband and this grace that's overflowing because you, the spouse, the believing spouse, is in that relationship. Oof, these are good questions, aren't they? They're tough questions. I wonder how long it took for Paul to, to you know, get some, ooh, that's a toughie, right? That's a toughie. That's a toughie. Any questions from, from you? So, if, oh, I didn't even wait very, did you notice that? Any questions? No, well, let's move on, let's move right on. Right? Actually, whew, got through that one. <laughs> All right. no, seriously, though, is there any questions? You know, and we're small enough. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the sanctification, and that's what's saying here. Let, let's go ahead. Let's put some names back. I, it just makes it easier. So let's take, let's go back to Ralph, and his wife I had was Irene, correct? Oh, no, he was looking at Sally. <laughs> careful, careful, careful. He was considering Sally, but he was married to Irene, right? How we do it? I think I got that right. Okay, so, so uh, Ralph is a Christian. Irene is not, okay? Now, Ralph, to stay there in that relationship, he is literally sanctifying his family. He's, they're being set apart because of his presence in that family. And it could be the wife as well. You understand what I'm saying. It could be either way. And that spillover of grace, and sanct- let's talk about sanctification, because I think Mary Kay takes us to a good spot. You know about the sense of justification, right? If you're saved, if you're here today and you've trusted Christ, you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the moment you did that, that millisecond, you literally have been justified. You have been declared not guilty. No longer does sin own you. The power of sin is broken. I'm sorry, I should say, the penalty of sin has been broken. Okay? Now, the power of sin is a day-by-day thing. I mean, it's, right? You don't just, power of sin is still, it's clinging on to you, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't give up. Read Romans chapter 7 with Paul. You should write that down. That's a great read. Romans chapter 7, Paul, verses 15 to like 25. He... And you think of Paul, he's like, the, he's like the super apostle, and he's really honest with it. He says, you know what, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I should do. What the world, right? That's the, that's the chains of sin, the power. Well, power of sin is broken one link at a time, if you will, one strand at a time. As you walk through this walk, which what is the process? Sanctification. That's a daily, moment-by-moment process that makes you a little bit more set apart. That's what that word means, sanctification, set apart, to be placed separately from sin, to be separate and closer to Jesus Christ. Literally, now coming back to what Mary Kay said, that husband, that saved husband in this case, Ralph, is literally sanctifying or setting apart his family by his presence being there. And there are setbacks. Don't get me wrong. That's sanctification. I think it was Chuck Swindoll many years ago. Well, we take three steps forward, and then we take a couple back. And we take three steps forward, and we take a couple back. But you know what? Three minus two, you're still going forward, okay? There's something about that that's super, super important. That that sanctifying influence or effect on the believing spouse is absolutely monumental. I can think of guys that are my age even that talk about their godly mother, their godly mother. 
and they still revert back to the scripture verses that may have learned at her knee, even though their father was not a believer. He was not a Christian. Do you see the impact of that? Again, if at all possible, if that unbeliever chooses to divorce or to leave, you are free to go. That's really, really good, solid advice, isn't it? Okay, anything else? Okay, if not, let's go to, uh, I got to see where I was, what are we doing here now? Um, oh, okay, so let's make sure we understand this now. From what Paul has added to, this is why we went to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is to give us just a little more fuller, a little more robustness about marriage and divorce. So we would have, literally, there is an exception for divorce based upon what? The first one that Jesus taught us was adultery, Okay. Now, Paul has opened up another one. If a believer, I'm sorry, if an unbeliever deserts, leaves, then that person, again, I'm going to just say, I'm going to say desertion, okay? And that's probably not the right word, but it works for the way, I think you understand where we're at today in our context, that that unbeliever chooses not to live with the believer anymore, takes a, a strong stance and divorces that person. He, has, he or she has now left. That lets that person literally open to remarry. And again, I'm going to say this, that potentially then, you saw the word that was used there. Let's go back and read it again, though. I want you to etch this in your mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and let's go to verse 15. But if the unbelieving departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. To peace. And ultimately, coming back together with, again, now this would be back to the last verses. This is where this would come back in. The unmarried now, that person of which the unbeliever would have left, now is what? Is, a, is an unmarried person. What was the key? They could vary except for what? In the Lord. That is absolutely mandatory that they would marry a Christian and in the will of God. It's amazing how clear this stuff is, right? I didn't say it was easy. See, and, and you know, amazing. This, this is stuff that if, if I got up in front of, I don't know, some auditorium or something and, and just John Q. Society shows up, oh, I wouldn't have lasted this long. They'd have shot me, right? Because why? They would see me as making this stuff. I'm the messenger. I'm the message. I'm sorry. I'm the message. Me- message. No, no, no. That's the key. That's what Jesus said. What did, what did the back of the book say? What did Genesis say? What did the Bible say? That's the message we have to continuously say. What does the Bible say? I was in, um, Paul may have been mentioned, but on Friday, I uh, had a short little service for the staff uh, in regards to Bud Sylvie. And it was Bud's request that the staff and those residents there would know about Jesus. I don't know if they do that very often in a, in a rest home, that you actually have a funeral, that you take it to them. You know, most of the time those people leave right? They die and they, they leave. And then potentially the staff is obviously made aware of where the funeral arrangements or the memorial would be. So they have the opportunity to go, but their schedule continues, right? No, we took it to them. And that was one of Bud's requests. And you think about it, we talked about three things there. Was truth, number one. Truth is so hard to find today, isn't it? It's, it's covered, it's, it's spun. Everybody has their own truth. But you know what? Faith, which is based on reality, and we talked about the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's fact. 
You don't have to believe it, but it's fact because literally in 1 Corinthians, we're in 1 Corinthians, it's one of the things that he said in first fi chapter 15, that literally there's 500 people that were still living that saw Jesus Christ in resurrected form. What a perfect opportunity to say, no, that's a lie. Why did he come? No, they were living. They, that was true. That's, that's went through that course of discussion. It's real. That's what faith is built on is actual reality. That's what our faith is. We're based in Jesus Christ because of what literally happened. And then our hope, that's what I wanted to give those people there. And, and for us as well. You have a loved one that's, been, that, that's passed away. Our hope is the fact that we will be with them one day because of what Jesus did. And when we place our faith in him, then our hope is real. So hope is based on faith. Faith is based on truth. And that's why, that's why Satan hates truth. He hates it, hates it, hates it. Because if you don't have truth, you can't have faith in the right thing. Isn't that, it's just absolutely, isn't it? That, this is literally, again, we have truth right here on marriage and divorce. That's real because it's in God's word. It's based on truth. Our faith can, can grab it, and it's literally our hope going forward. This is strong stuff, isn't it? I was, uh, oh, I'm getting, I'm getting I'll, I'll just keep moving. I've got two sermons going on one. I can't do that. Okay, so our exceptions, uh, clearly, then for divorce, which God hates, I want to, let's, let's be really honest here. Guess what? Even if there is this, if it, apart from desertion, that person has said, just stay right there. Your family will prosper with you being there. If that person decides to leave, takes off, has no part, and that's okay, you're free to marry. If there's adultery, which again, in the Old Testament, would have been, uh, um, consequences would have been by death. That partner is literally seen as dead before God. You are free to marry. Good. Yes. You back uh, Irene and Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> We're making an impression, aren't we? Yeah. Irene gets saved, but Ralph wants to stay married to her, but he tells her she can't go to church, and he kind of plays that dominant factor. So Irene submits and doesn't go to church, you know. Yeah. You still have that conflict. That's right. It's really tough. Irene wants to go to church, but Ralph says no. Yeah. So who does she obey? <laughs> that's a, now, that's a good point. So let's go to First Peter. I think it'll answer it for us. That's a little bit different. But, again, Irene, that's a really tough call, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. Irene is a Christian. Where does she want to go? <laughs> She wants to go to church. She wants to go where the, where, the, where the fellowship is. She wants to know where the truth is, right? But let's go to 1 Peter, and that's chapter 3, I think. This may not answer the question, but um, it, it helps us in the sense of just how God has put this together. And we'll, and we'll come back. Um, this is instructions in 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll, we'll read it for, through the first seven verses, okay? Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Okay, so let's talk about that for a moment. And I, I could name some names, but I'm going to leave them out of families, uh, I'm sorry, husband and wife, where the wife got saved, and the husband was actually, um, I would say, had some sense of animosity. Okay, In other words, it's seen sometimes as this, wait a minute. She was my wife, and now it's like she's not my wife. She's like this God thing she's chasing after, right? I, can, I, I know of examples like that, right? But what this woman, and I'm, now I'm not back, I'm going to come back to Irene in a moment, but this person, her husband, she still responded to him as being head of the home. That, that's, that's a message. We'll see it in verse 6 too, but let's just talk about it right now. And there's something about that sense of her being submissive that her life and seeing the difference, 
that makes a difference in his life. This is, again, part of the saying. And I tell you what, that is one of the most difficult things is what Ernie has just brought up. For a wife that's saved, of which the husband is really domineering and trying to keep her away from everything that feeds her spiritually and would feed the children and the family. You see what I'm saying? That thing there, you, that has got to be bathed in prayer. And you have to continue to just launch that before God. Okay? But I know that in this, this case, again, I'm leaving names out. It's someone that you would all possibly know. It's from the area. And this woman, who became saved later in life, went on and her conversation or her living, her, how she lived her life, even though he resented the fact that she was no longer, quote, all of his, she was like God's property now or something. And he didn't understand that. He saw the change in her life. He saw the change in her life. And he one day called me. He said, Larry, i got to talk to you. Okay, that's great. So go over and you know how it is. You chit-chat, talk about nothing, about nothing. And finally, he says, I just don't know what to do with God. My biggest problem is, if there really is a God, if there really is, why does he let the little children suffer, the innocents suffer? Why does that happen? There's a toughie, right? That's the way to open that one up. Well, there's an easy one, buddy, right? <laughs> and I said, well, that is not as easy to answer. That's why you're having trouble with it. But literally, that's because of sin. All of that comes because self takes precedence over anything else. And we have people that would take advantage of even those innocent young people just to better themselves in their perspective. I said, I don't ultimately know the answer. But I said, I got a better one. Tell me about your wife. What do you think? Do you think she's real? Do you think she's authentic? Do you think what's happened in her life? It really is. I can't deny that. She's changed. She's completely changed. You see what that did? And she didn't stuff it down his throat, which is, Irene would really like to stuff it down Ralph's throat, right? <laughs> because it's, it's like, but you know what? It was the fact of her quiet, generous spirit that was so sweet, so soft, he could not argue with who she was. He said, I can't believe how different she is. And I said this. I said, sir, I called him by his name. I said, sir, there's questions that you won't be able to have answered to your fullest sense of satisfaction but what you do have to do is you have to answer the questions that are clear your wife has changed that same God that saved her wants to save you that's a decision that you can make you won't get all of the answers but you must trust with what you know that you can trust and it was really cool I didn't get the chance to lead him to the Lord that day but somebody did why? because his wife was faithful faithful faithful. Now, if he would have chosen to leave her, then she would have been free. But he, she just stayed right there. That's a picture that's a real example in this world, in this valley, that literally happened. Now, let's come back. Let's, let's read another verse in Ernie. In Ernie's, we're back in First Peter. And now I've truly lost my glasses. They're not on the piano. What do I do with them now? Oh, they're there. Okay. Why don't I just keep those things glued on? So let's go. Let's continue. Verse 2, chapter 3 of First Peter. While they behold their, your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and the wearing of gold or putting on of apparel. It doesn't matter what you look like, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their husbands. Watch verse 6. 
even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Now, I'm going to use an example of Abram. Now, Abram and Sarah both believed God, okay? So it's, it's not quite the Ralph Irene deal. But Sarah, how would you like to have been Sarah, women, if Abraham, we, we were going to take a tr- cruise to Egypt, which you don't know how much they prayed about that? They didn't. They just said, it's dry, we've got a famine, let's go to Egypt. And they take off, they get down. <gasps> problem, problem, Sarah, you are beautiful, right? You are unbelievably beautiful. There's a problem here, honey. Uh, what you need to do right now is you can't tell them that you're my wife. It's going to be better for, for you. I mean, for me, um, if you would just go ahead and share with them that you're just my sister. Do you, think, do you think Sarah rolled her eyes? Oh, my goodness. What does that do to me? That means you've left me out. You've thrown me under the bus. What did she do? She subjected herself to her husband. Did God protect her? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. In fact, he looked like the jerk because they found out that he had told her to tell them that he was her sister, not his wife. And what are you doing? We could have sinned against God, right? So it's interesting that Irene, in this case, would be put in a, in a very ticklish situation. There's still ways as she cries out to God, as she prays to him, that God will protect that. Because why? Because she is the sanctifying presence in that family. And it grieves me. It breaks my heart, Ernie, as you brought that up. I mean, for you as well, the fact that Irene and her family is not being able to go to church. But for her to fight that, to put her, I'm going to go anyway. I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to go to church, Ralph. Uh, It's not going to end well. It's not going to end well, is it? Do you, see, do you see that sense of how God can work through a softness? Did you see it? We saw it there. Meekness and a soft spirit. Meekness and humility will get more done than anything else I can imagine. It's for us as Christians. Uh, we, if we approach non-Christians in the same manner, humility and meekness, oh, my goodness. I was, I'll just say this. On Friday, as I gave that, that message to the nursing home, one of the things that was very important that I wanted to relay, and it's interesting, the reception that you get in the sense of listening. Okay? One of the first things I did is I complimented and thanked the staff for how they have treated the residents, how they've made it home. I said, this is one of the greatest places. My mother called this home. And your mom, your dad, I mean, it was home. They do a fantastic job up there. And I wanted to sense that appreciation. You know what? When, you, when people know that you're appreciated and loved, you know what? They're listening to a message. You know how open Ralph would be to Irene that stomps her foot and says, I'm going to go to church anyway, Ralph. He's not listening to the gospel anymore, right? Again, not the best. But literally, God can do miraculous things with a soft spirit. How'd we do? Amen. All right. All right. Um, how's our time? Well, we're still a little bit. So, let's see. We... we uh, we talked about the two exceptions now. This is, this is, Scripture doesn't have any more than this. These are the two exceptions that God allows divorce. There's no others. Okay? Now, if you're... Count- What's separation? Excuse me? Separated. Being separated, in other words, uh, apart from... Well, what- I think you're still married, but <laughs> you're on your own. Okay. In other words, um, they're not legally divorced. They're separated. No. Correct? Okay. Now, that would come under the fact of... Now, let, let's talk about another one. I'm, I am da- I'm treading on dangerous waters now, okay? So this is the part where I prayed. Remember how I prayed as if something is false, that it quickly evaporate from your minds? So hopefully this is right, but if it's not, we're going to again say that. There's, there's a couple of situations that may be in your mind where you would have the sense of 
physical or emotional abuse within a, within a relationship. And I'm talking about a wife that is probably the, the, the receiver of this horrible abuse. You know, let's just say that this husband beats his wife, okay? That's not there. I'm, it's not there. But one thing that has to happen because it's an unlawful act, it is absolutely against the laws of this land, that then there needs to be a separation for the safety of this, in this case, the wife and the children. I don't, there's nothing wrong with that. She can't, she, it's wrong for her to stay there. And it's amazing, the abused women in this country, I can't speak to other countries as much, it's like they are taking responsibility for them being in that situation. They're the reason. Why this happens, I don't know. They feel they're the reason that they're being beaten. Isn't that terrible? That is terrible. And it probably comes from former uh, situations, maybe growing up, maybe their uh, father abused their mother, you see? It's not there, but separation absolutely would be in order. Again, looking for that sense of repentance and re return to what is proper. That husband, in this case, he needs to get some, um, I was going to say training, but I don't, that's not the right word. Uh, counseling. Yeah, he needs, in, in other words, so there has to be some sense of not just remorse, but repentance. I mean, this is, this is wrong behavior. This is, no matter what, non-Christian or Christian, it doesn't matter. In that case, I think separation is demanded. Okay, now that's not what you were talking about. But let's go back to, to a husband and wife. There isn't abuse, but they've separated. Okay? Now that's literally what, let's go back to the verse that would uh, imply to that. Um, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and let's look at this in verse 5. Let's read it again. With this in mind, as Terry's raised this up, defraud you not one the other, except it be with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not with your... Con That's a separation. They've literally separated from one another for a time. In this case, it's physically, but you know what happens when you're separated. The whole thing breaks down. And the longer one is separated, with no reason to get back together... I'm sorry, what I'm saying, I should have said it differently. The longer one is separated and there's no reason not to be back together the more opportunity that separation will end up in anything other than those two. It's a very dangerous place to be. Now, the physical abuse thing, that is really, really difficult. I don't have all of the answers to that. I know that the wife, in this case, if she needs to step away. She needs to get some friends. She needs to get the church involved to surround her with her love. And hopefully the sense of that separation, that husband will come to his senses and say, you know what, I need to, I need to change. I've got to get this fixed. Because you know what more than likely? It's amazing. Husbands that abuse their wives come from families that they saw their father abuse their wives. That's a, that's a train wreck that has been going on through generations. And anything short of removing yourself from that situation, I don't see how it can happen. Okay? And where does divorce end up in that? I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I know that she has to be safe. Her children have to be safe. They have to be. And I would say this. If that man that is abusing his wife claims to be a Christian, he needs a good whooping. Because <laughs> that's not God's way. In fact, that's what we, we kind of want to close out here with, with really, okay, here we have divorce. We've talked about the, 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 um, the exceptions. We've talked about why it is this way. What can we do to make it better? Now, there's, there's some that may hear my voice, not here, but maybe uh, on our podcast. They said, Larry, I've blown it so badly. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I've had, I've had three marriages, and I've blown them all. And I've even been a Christian in the last one. I mean, it's just, it's, it, 
I don't know, what, what am I going to, what, what do I do? Well, I'll tell you what. If you don't know Christ as Savior, then this day now you've been exposed to truth. You need to get saved. You need to place your faith in Jesus Christ for your future. This day going forward is a brand new life for you. It's brand new. But if you have been a Christian, thankfully, Jesus Christ is still your advocate. He died for you. Let's go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And as you're turning there, maybe just stop in at James chapter 2. Um, we've been talking about divorce. We've been talking about sin that has to do with marriage. But James chapter 2 and verse 10, uh, there's really no respect in the sense of sin. Look at this. James chapter 2 verse 10. This is a verse you need to have, you need to know. For whosoever, verse 10, chapter 2 of James, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. That's, you, you see what I'm saying? It could be just... Any, any little white lie, that's sin. It's all sin. It's all falling short of God's grace. Now, where did I tell you to go? First John, there we go. This verse here, this is, this is written to Christians. And that person that has been saved and has made a wreck of their marriage, struggling, what do I do now, Larry? What, what do I do? Well, I'll tell you what. If you are, have been a Christian, then literally this is what you need to do. Verse 9, chapter 1, 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you come to God on your knees in humility and honesty and you're saying, I know that I have failed, I've now seen the truth, then this moment forward as you confess those sins and you repent of that, God is going to lead you on a path with more strength as you continue to cling to him, focus on him. You see, this isn't meant to demean anyone. This is God's rules. This is God's law because it's best for us. Can you imagine? Let's say we didn't have any divorces in here. Can you imagine what would happen in this country? It's amazing, wouldn't it be? All of that hurt. Are the, you know, all of the divisions that take place. Christ died to join back together mankind and God. <laughs> it's fantastic. And yet these things are Satan's tools. They're Satan's tools. So let's close with one more thing. It's one verse. And it's one verse that I've really, as I've done premarital counseling, that just sticks out to me as the summarization of everything that needs to happen is we have these two individual selves. We've got a woman and we've got a man. And they come to this wedding. They come to this union, this gluing back together. You know what tries to break the glue apart? This is the self part, right? They have their own selves and they want to just, I'm bigger than you or I can do it better or whatever it is, right? The secret literally is capsulized, is summarized in one verse in the scriptures. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. So, now, you guys didn't remind me, did you? Oh, you didn't know it was closing. What a deal, right? Ephesians chapter 5. Let's go there. Ephesians chapter 5, and let's go to verse 33. Now, those of you that want to do some more uh, study in regards to this, this is a fantastic exhortation on marriage. Ephesians, just start in verse 21 and go all through the end of the chapter there, verse 33. But we're going to just dive in to verse 33. Ephesians 5, verse 33. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular, this is to every one of you, so love his wife, husbands, love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence or respect her husband. If that happened in every marriage across the United States or across the world, you know what? These would go away. The divorces would go away. When that man loves his wife like Christ loved the church... What did, what did that imagine? What was that like? He gave himself for it. He died for the church. He died for everyone that would come to him. If that husband would take that aspect to his wife, there's nothing, honey, that I would not 
allow myself to let you go through. I give you everything. And that's not just saying it. You, you know. That wife knows when it's there. She knows when that love from her husband is there. She knows that. And wife, if you will respect your husband, there's nothing, there's no other way for you to show your love to him than respect to him. There's nothing. I remember I was a, it was a young couple um, that I was counseling. And, and it, you know, in the word of love, um, I said, and I said to her, I said, if you make him, your husband-to-be, the number one man on this planet, you respect him as your guy. Well, I thought I was supposed to love him. I said, that's how you love him. I said, that's what he receives as love. You show me a man that's been beaten down or a wife will pick at in a public setting, demean him. There is nothing that will debilitate that man than that right there. Nothing. But when he knows that he's respected as the number one man on the planet, there's nothing, there's no way that that wife could love that man more. And when that wife knows that that man will literally give his life for that you, that wife, there's nothing that will keep her from respecting him. That literally is the key. That's what Adam and Eve, to have their marriage last in a sinful condition, they had to do. That's when every one of these marriages that I see in my marriage, everywhere else, to make that marriage not become a statistic as a divorce is the fact that husband needs to love his wife to that level and the wife to respect him to that level. That's the key. One verse in the scripture. Isn't it amazing? Now, here's the problem. Well, I'm not going to be first. (laughs) She needs to do it. No, that's not what it says. Right? You do your part, she does her part. You, you as the wife do your part, he'll do his part. Isn't that true? Absolutely. Guess what that, guess what's the basis? This is what is all in Christian living. You know what's at the bottom of that? Humility. Humility. Being willing to do the right thing regardless of cost. Whew. Okay. Any other questions? How much trouble we get? <laughs> it's a deep subject. This is, this, but you know what? I think this is literally, we've capsulized Jesus and Paul's teaching to give us a picture of marriage and divorce as it's given by the scriptures. Anything else? Comments? Questions? I got one about the unequal yoke. Okay. Don't, if you've got a Christian, don't you think they end up converting the non-believer? I'm going, to, I'm going to go back to the scripture, and I'm, again, I'm going to say that that can happen. Uh, I, I gave you an example of, of a couple that she got saved late in life. They were both non-Christians when they got married, lived a pretty rough life, and ultimately, they both got saved. Okay? Her life literally was active. Now, Paul says this. Let's go back and reread this one uh, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and he's saying to that person, that Christian that's hanging on, he's saying in verse 16, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 16, and he's making this claim. For what, are you there? 1 Corinthians 7, verse 16. For what knowest thou? Do you think, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband, or how do you know that you will save your wife? That's not a given. That is not a given. In other words, when we use that word of sanctification, in other words, that believer sanctifying the home, that is not redemption. That is literally a grace fulfilling that home. So there's a possibility that it can, but to make that a rule, I can't, I can't see that. I can't see that. Now, again, if there's a Christian within a non-Christian marriage and one got saved after the fact, or, or here's, another, here's another situation. 
Let's just say this. Let's go back to Ralph and Irene. Let's say that Ralph was a Christian, and he married Irene, who wasn't a Christian, and they have a, they're unequally yoked, okay? And one day he wakes up and says, ooh, what did I do? I can't believe this. Let's go back to Sally's not a church. She looks like a winner. Maybe I should just get rid of Irene. No. See, the, where we're playing is the fact, stay right where you're at. Stay right where you're at. Your realization and you going forward, the chances if Irene wants to stay with Ralph, that's a really good thing. And then, Terry, I think the chances of Irene, provided that, she, that he lives a life that is fulfilling, that is God-filled with grace, and he's living and doing and loving his wife to that level, you know what? She, no guarantees. That verse in the scripture is what it is. You don't know that, but it's surely going to go up. It's just like the example I talked of this couple. I'm going to say this. His wife is the reason that God used to get him saved. And I don't know how all those journeys and those tentacles go, but I don't think there was any other person in the world apart from his wife living that humble, meek, wonderful life that that man would have seen it anywhere else. She was the reason for him to get saved through God. No, don't, don't take that away. Don't take the Holy Spirit away because it was the Spirit working in his heart. And he has me come over and ask me questions that I can't answer. But the point was I was able to steer him back to his wife's change, that literally that was God working in that man's life. I'm, I'm sorry, in that woman's life. So I don't think we can be sure of that, but there's always those possibilities. Particularly if that union is already there, stay there, stay there. But if you're a Christian, you should not be looking to anyone to be married to except one that is a Christian and that is in the will of God for you. Okay. Yeah, for you to go into that and say, well, I'll change you. Yeah, that and that, by the way, that, there's a lot of that goes on. You know? In other words, it's amazing how women and men, I'm not, we're both the same. Boy, you know, I really love, I, I like the Ralph Irene. It's just working for me now. I, I got it. So, so Ralph says, you know what, Irene's really a sweetheart, but she's not a Christian, but I'll change her. I'm going to change her. How many people go into a marriage saying they're going to change that other person? Guess who entered that marriage? Two selves. Self, taking advantage of the other self doesn't work, does it? It doesn't work. How many people have been changed? Usually what happens is there's just animosity. There's troubles. There's challenges. All of this enters into this, and this turmoil, which is talked about in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. There's no change, and usually takes place, except the whole thing just blows up. Whew. A lot of times there's change, all right. <laughs> the, the Christian ends up That's following right. and backsliding to the point That's of right. having peace in the family with the non-Christian. That's right. It's very difficult. Very difficult. And it does take, I want, to, I want to be careful here, in, this, in, a, in, a, in a mixed marriage, and that's a believer and a non-believer, the believing spouse has got to be so amazingly focused on Jesus Christ. It's just, I mean, it, it's a harder job. In fact, we didn't have time today, but if you were going to go further into that, it was the sense of the fact of how important it is, even in times like this, as Paul said, be like me, you can be more focused if you're single. Now, not to, if you're married, don't get single, but I'm saying if you are widowed or you're unmarried, then stay that way because that's probably going to be better. He talks about tribulation there in this whole Roman Empire thing. That was real. That was real. And you can get a sense of where we're going now. When you have a family, husbands or wives for that matter, you're not just concerned about yourself now. You're concerned about your family. And there's challenges coming before us. I, I, we're really hurtling towards the end of this age. 
We, we, we are just moving at a rapid, rapid pace. It's, it's amazing. The things that we're ready to sell out for, you can see Revelation. That's another. I don't know when we're going to go there. It doesn't seem quite right yet. But the book of Revelation, we've been through it, I think, three times in the, in the 22 years. But this time when, we go, when God has us to go through it again, I'm going to tell you what. It's, it's going to be clearer than we've ever seen it. This revelation makes so much sense right now to us. It's amazing. Now, I'm not, not setting dates. I'm not like that. I'm not like that. Because if I set a date, that would be one day. We know it wouldn't happen. You could write that down, right? But the point of the matter is the signs and the times of the whole spirit of Antichrist has never been more prominent than we have today. People have lost their way in truth. They don't know what truth is anymore, so that's off, off. the delusion that it talks about in 2 Corinthians. The delusion that men will accept in that whole spirit of Antichrist is, about, is all about us. It's all about us. Okay, taking you past time. This has been a great session, though. Great session. Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the day. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your scripture. Thank you for clear direction. Thank you, Father, for all of the things that you have given to us in the sense of marriage, families, and how you put them together, the reasons that you've done that. And Father, behind the breakdown of marriage, behind the breakdown of the family, that is Satan's tool to destroy your handiwork, to take men and women to literally destroy their lives. Father, we would ask for those today, Father, that are struggling, that, have, uh, that are in a marriage of which they're struggling. We would ask that you would open your arms, give them everything they need to accomplish it in a manner that is pleasing towards you. Uplift that wife or that husband. Unleash, Father, your wisdom to them. We've looked at so many different uh, situations today, Father, and all of them, Father, all of them are involved in people's personal lives. We just ask that, Father, you would give them that husband, that you would give him a love that is so sacrificial, so agapao, a sacrificing love to his wife that she can't, she just can't resist being given him, her giving him the respect that makes him feel even more loving towards her. Father, fulfill, ramp up, replenish the marriages across this land. And Father, those that are trapped in a situation that is full of discontent, that they're suffering, Father, show them direction. Show them what you want them to do. We ask for yieldedness across this land to your will. We pray for us as Christians to be more dedicated, more focused, more committed to you. We pray for all of us who don't even know Jesus Christ. Maybe just today they've heard that there is a God that loves them, that sent Jesus Christ to die for their sins. They need a Savior, and they reach out in faith, trusting, committing themselves to that one, the only one that's ever been resurrected from the dead because he paid a price, and he did it sinlessly. Therein lies their future. Thank you, Father, for all of that. Thank you for these dear ones that are here today. Bless us, keep us close to you. We honor you, we uplift you, we glorify you, and these things we'll all ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.